Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Les Nichols, Director of the Office of Technology Commercialization, also known as the OTC, at the University of Texas at Austin. In this role, Les leads a team of 25 who focus on creating value and technology developed by UT Austin researchers and who facilitate the transfer of inventions from academic research to outside organizations for the benefit of society on a local, national, and global basis. Les oversees all aspects of OTC business, intellectual property, as well as all startup and licensing activities between the OTC and faculty university-wide and provides counsel to the staff on strategy, negotiation, terms, and goals. Les works closely with campus research administrations to implement a strategic vision for technology transfer services that align with university and industry research strategies. Les originally joined the OTC as a licensing specialist and was later promoted to program director, physical sciences licensing. During his tenure, he was responsible for directing the team of licensing specialists dedicated to serve the researchers generating intellectual property in the physical sciences disciplines. Capping a 23-year career of experience in industry, Les's broadly applicable background includes senior-level sales of a variety of products and technologies to the semiconductor industry and university research market segments. Les was a principal in his own consultancy, specializing in chemical plant process design and optimization, and he was integral in the development and startup of a new division of a large diversified energy company that developed the most cost-effective means of providing high-purity chemistry to the largest semiconductor manufacturers. Les holds a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Oklahoma. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Les. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here, Lisa. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks again. So let's go ahead and, and kick things kick things off at the beginning. Um, you've had 23 years in industry. That's a long time. And now you're in tech transfer. Can you tell a bit tell us a little bit about what led you to tech transfer? Sure, sure. It's kind of an interesting uh trip that it's been. Uh so again, after kind of like what you said, thanks for that outstanding introduction. After many years of working as in business development, sales and support, uh, specifically focused around the semiconductor industry, uh, I became interested in exploring alternatives that might be a little bit less affected by what seemed to be the cyclical nature of semiconductor manufacturing, these cycles that they have to try to keep driving line widths lower and everything where they design and build new fab and then it takes a couple of years for that fab to be constructed and then ramped up to full production. And then uh, once that happens, they start a process of designing and rebuilding again. So there's this cycle that occurs. 
kind of like uh, feast and famine when you're supplying into that market segment. So I started to look around and wondered what could be a little bit more stable than that. And I wonder what's going on at the University of Texas. And so I saw this position open at the OTC in the licensing uh, uh, area. And it was interesting. Uh, it seemed like a match because they were looking for applicants that had strong connections in industry, which, of course, my background provided me that. Um, and so, again, when I look back at the, the jobs that I've held, you know, from initially coming out of school, being a process engineer uh, to at a chemical company where we were designing and installing a new process to really upgrade the existing stream of chemi- chemicals that we made so that they could be uh, sold into this very high quality, uh, high, uh, uh, you know, uh, intricate process manufacturing industry of semiconductors, right? So it was back in the 80s. So we had to do a lot of work understanding what our customers' real needs were. And then that just grew from there where I moved from that role into a sales role, working directly with the customers again to try to figure out how we as a supplier could meet their needs. Uh, And then that led to where I actually left that initial company to go to work for the customer. And again, I I started managing people at that point, running their uh, quality control lab. Uh, So that exposed me not only to management skills, but also to some of the technology that they were using for metrology uh, around the chemistry. And then I, I evolved in that position to where I actually ran the packaging plant after a couple of years. And so it was a processing and packaging plant where we bought raw material chemicals and we uh, did a lot of filtration, uh, liquid filtration and gases phase filtration. And so, again, the metrology required in the laboratories, um, gas chromatography, uh, uh, ICP mass spec. Sure. This kind of these kind of instruments, and so understanding that, and then understanding uh, different aspects of filtration to remove particles, and then to measure those particle levels. Uh, all this uh, led me uh, into the uh, into that role of where I was able to again working directly with semiconductor customers to understand what their needs were, and then I moved over to a company where I was able to start this new business for them. Because I, I knew that they had, we had a lot of manufacturing capability. We could invest a little bit at some manufacturing sites and create a way to directly supply some of these fabs. As the fabs were growing bigger, uh, they were looking for ways to cut their costs and still retain those high quality suppliers that they needed. So I, because of this knowledge that I had built up, I was able to use that in that way. And so that exposed me to the whole ramification of starting something from scratch, right? It wasn't like your standard entrepreneur out on the street forming a new company because I was within an existing group. However, there was a lot of similarities in hiring people, you know, identifying the right uh, talent that we needed, uh, starting uh, from scratch on the sales cycle with customers around, we have a new way to do this. Why should you listen to me anyway? Because you know, boom, 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 all these reasons. And so it, when you look back on the licensing role now and moving into where I have been in tech transfer for 11 years now, all these things 
from the metrology equipment, the management of people, the starting of, an, of a company from, from nothing have, have enabled me to be able to much more uh, adequately, I think, serve the faculty uh, and the researchers that I work with, both in the physical sciences and now a little bit more broadly in the director role that I have. So it, it kind of all uh, has come together when it, it really wasn't ever a plan that this would occur. I never thought of myself working at a university because I don't have an advanced degree. Um, and so uh, it's all just kind of like worked out uh, as it has. So Sounds like you have that real world experience, which you, you know, you see people a lot of times in, in tech transfer offices with PhDs and postdoc experience and maybe a little real world experience, but you have a tremendous knowledge base that you brought with you, which has got to be really, really helpful in that role, especially having been on the other side and knowing what industry looks for. And that must be give you guys a tremendous advantage, I would think. No, it's absolutely right, because not only do I have those connections with people that I used to work with and used to talk to uh, from a different perspective that I can bring in when we have technologies that might be relevant, but also I can convey that to my faculty, that here's what the industry is thinking about. And the reason I'm, I know that is because it used to be me. Yeah, you were there you for, know, for 23 years, years. Yeah, For many years, I would be the one coming to talk to you about, here's what our company needs, right? So that really helps a lot. Oh, I would imagine so. And as I said in the intro, your group is large. It's about 25. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about how your office is structured? I mean, because I know the University of Texas, uh, your office, I know, has a lot that goes on and goes through it. So if you could tell us a little bit about the different roles and, and different kind of components of it, that would be great. Sure, absolutely. We're, we're like you say, uh, 25 or so uh, people total. And the way we break it up is we really are focused on the licensing uh, efforts and how everybody else in the organization is, needs to think about supporting licensing in the best way possible. And so we have nine people, uh, which includes the director of licensing, who are focused on the uh, uh, management of intellectual property. And we'll talk a little bit more about it later uh, in depth. But uh uh, the managing of the, the IP from the faculty and all the way from soup to nuts, you know, early disclosure uh, and then taking it out into the marketplace with negotiation. So in support of that, we have three people in the legal and IP section, a director of that group who actually has a JD and his uh, background is Stanford educated uh, lawyer uh, with the, his JD and experience. Uh, as a uh, patent litigator. Oh, wow. So that is really beneficial for us as, oh my we, gosh, as yeah. he helps us formulate these, uh, not only the patent structures and strategies that we do with our faculty, but on the contract uh, discussions and negotiations that we do with companies, kind of taking that look at it from what if this were to go to litigation at some point. So, He's really, really helpful and been valuable for us. And reporting to him, there are two other folks. One person who manages the compliance, right? Once the licenses are executed, who's going to track what needs to happen by when to make sure the licensees are doing what they're supposed to do. That's our compliance person. And then also there's a person who manages the docket and works directly with all of our uh, uh, outside patent uh, firms. 
right, to manage the steps that have to be taken on a timely basis for prosecution. So those three folks. And then a business analyst, we have one person that does that. Uh, we've got uh, two folks that are focused on new ventures and startups. Uh, and that's actually in collaboration, recent collaboration within the last six months that we've established with two of the biggest uh, uh, schools at the at the campus, the College of uh, Engineering and the College of Natural Sciences, um, both uh, have joined joined with me to form up what we call the Texas Innovation Center. And these two people manage uh, programs and uh, work with uh, investors and outside companies. And basically their role is to be the focal point for any faculty member on campus who believes they want to do a startup. Here's where you come talk to, talk oh, wow. to these folks first. They will help you think about exactly what you mean by that. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? What role are you going to play as faculty member? Uh, and, and so you, they start working through that process. And then also in collaboration, of course, with our licensing team, who at some point would be involved when invention disclosure comes that that maybe the new co wants to license. Got it. Right. So there's two folks doing that. And then in the kind of back office operations part, there are two folks that do marketing and uh, public relations. There are three people in the accounting office. And then uh, three people in the administrative support function. And then we currently have four uh, interns that are graduate students right now. Wow. It's so a big that's group. That's kind of how it's broken up. Yeah. That's an impressive group. Um, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, Baidol. I'm, I'm taking kind of a survey and the people I talk to to kind of get their impressions since we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of Baidol mm-hmm. this December. And, and there's been a lot of written about, you know, some articles, whether or not Baidol is going to even survive its 40th birthday and things like that. And I think obviously a lot of those were written before we were in this current state of coronavirus. Um, yeah. But I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Baidol, if, if you could reflect on it a little bit and, and what you think its uh, impact's been on universities and whether you know, knowing what you know about it and and having lived with it um, every day, uh, would you advocate for any changes uh, that would, you know, any changes that might help university tech transfer going forward? Yeah, obviously, you know, the passing into law of the Bayh-Dole Act, allowing for the product of all federally funded research to be owned by the institutions who use the funding dramatically increase the availability of IP from research universities to the industrial marketplace. Now, you know, before 1980, researchers who developed inventive concepts in their work using federal research funds would uh, a lot of times have to develop their own uh, plans for how to file patents and how to seek licenses and make introductions for themselves to potential companies and maybe start new companies, whatever, they were kind of on their own. And so very few um, obviously pursued that path because they were so busy as researchers. So they would simply just publish the results of their work. So then uh, in fiscal year 2019, uh, UT Austin received $658 million in total research funding, 64% of that being from federal agencies. Incredible. Right. And another 17% from private entities. 
So, you know, the current situation under Bayh-Dole allows us to cultivate relationships with industry partners who understand and value the research areas where our faculty excel. Uh, and I think this provides revenues or avenues, excuse me, for research funding, IP licensing, and student employment uh, after graduation, right, which are the critical things that we're trying Very critical. to shoot for. And I'm also hoping we're going to see a renewed appreciation from the public in general about the work that universities do, especially right now. I think people are starting to you're starting to see that more, at least it seems to me, you know, Rutgers came out with a saliva test for, you know, uh, COVID-19. And I think, you know, given the current state of things, the public is starting to see the role that universities are playing and the interaction between universities and industry and trying to come up with more tests for this pandemic and also a cure. And, you know, everybody seems to be working on vaccines and cures and tests. And I'm hoping that what we'll see once this is over is hopefully a renewed appreciation by the public of just how important university research is. And that will translate into greater appreciation, I think, for really what the Bayh-Dole is, because it was a tremendous piece of legislation when it was enacted at the time. Oh, that's a great point, Lisa, you know, because living in Austin, Texas, for instance, it's a university town. Exactly. So everybody knows UT is there and everybody is aware that UT is doing things not only on the sports field, but there's a lot of discussion right around uh, research activities and things that happen uh, as a result of that. But on a national level, I think you're absolutely right. You know, as unfortunate as this whole pandemic is, I think that you make a great point. It, it, It is really highlighting on a national level the value of university research because there's so much where uh, faculty researchers at in every you know campus large and small yep. have 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 taken you know taken it upon themselves to work on uh, answers to some of these problems whether it be you know PPE uh, or respirator designs or Exactly. Uh, like you said, the, the, the equipment or the, the ability to test for, for the virus. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really pretty astounding. Yeah. And it needs to be, it needs to be, uh, yeah, shouted from the rooftops, I think. And hopefully people will start to understand why you have to fund universities in this research, not when something like a pandemic happens, you need to do yeah. it years in advance because we can't come up with solutions and fixes oh and vaccines on the fly. It takes years. And I'm hoping yeah. with, you know, maybe the public will start to, you know, people will appreciate that more um, given this this pandemic and realize we have to invest in science in our universities and let them do this, this research. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about some of the funding that UT gets. Can you talk about some of your numbers, things like disclosures that you get every year, licenses, startups, and, oh, and things sure. like that? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, looking back at our most recent year of tallies in uh, fiscal year 2018, uh, UT Austin had 165 invention disclosures that year. Um, and we had 73 issued patents. Um, 97 executed licenses and options. Uh, we helped to support the formation of 10 new startup companies around our IP out of the university. 
And the revenue in fiscal 2018 was $11.4 million that year. That's quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, you know, the thing about revenue, lots of people try to focus on that, but any tech transfer office will tell you that uh, uh, the revenue should never be what you're constantly focused on, right? It's keeping the pipeline full because at the end of the day, the revenue is going to be driven by royalties, which are going to happen a few years after the execution of that initial license agreement. And a lot of things have to go right as far as product development, market uh, factors that come into play for demand for the product and service. So all that stuff you kind of have less control over, right? If you put it, if you keep the pipeline filled with good invention disclosures from your faculty, uh, structure good deals when you get uh, an opportunity to license those, then the revenue will come. Exactly. And then uh, as well, on the other side, on the flip side, patents do have uh, an expiration date. They they have a limited life. So, you know, just because you have revenue today doesn't mean you're going to have it tomorrow. Yep. Your patents will expire. Yep. That's so you get that monopoly only for so long for your 20 exactly. years and that's it. And that, exactly. that's a great segue uh, talking about patents. Um, I'm curious, when the AIA came into effect, we established things like PGRs and IPRs, and there's always patent litigation. And you mentioned you have a former patent litigator on your on your staff. Um, yeah. I I know UT um, has enforced some of his patents. I've, I've seen some of the cases. Can you talk a little bit about um, your choices in terms of litigating? And, and um, I know universities generally tend to be litigation adverse, but um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about the process when you decide um, yeah. how you're going to go about litigation and, and how yeah. that's worked for you. Because litigation is always hard, even just in industry. It, it's time consuming. It's expensive. It, you know, document production is painful. So curious how that's been for you guys at the university. Yeah, yeah. It, all those things are absolutely correct. And we especially now that we have this outstanding uh, director of our legal group who has a litigation background, um, we are very cautious uh, as we pursue these these types of uh, situations. You know, um, we really want to ensure, A, of course, that we have a very strong, financially capable uh licensed partner, corporate partner, um, who is, uh, has productized the patents in question, um, and is making, uh, you know, decent business revenue with it. Right. Yep. As long as we have that to, as a start point, uh, then we're, uh, open to look at the potential uh, challenges that may come up around uh, infringers and then uh, how to address that. But again, the very first thing that we always want to try to do is let's try to understand uh, the perspectives of all the parties. Who are these other folks? Uh, are they truly being, you know, egregious uh, with their actions or are they just being a little bit ignorant and we can help bring them, you know, into a position of knowledge? Yep. And so that they, you know, because uh, perhaps it's a it's a collaborative effort that helps out everybody that can be forged uh, in lieu of going to court, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So we always try to focus and take that tack and kind of see where it, where it leads us. And occasionally, uh, and, th- and it's really pretty rare. Uh, there haven't been a lot of these uh, deals, litigation challenges during my 11 years I've been here. Uh, but so that's good. Uh, but occasionally it does go to that point where we have to do it. Uh, but like you said, then it becomes uh, a, a time sink to a lot of people. And so there's cost there, opportunity cost, as well as, of course, uh, potential financial risk. Absolutely. That has to be taken, has to be taken into account. Yeah. I think, you know, not only is it expensive, like you mentioned, but the time sink, um, one of the first uh, individuals I interviewed for this podcast was Dean Stell at Wake Forest Innovations. And he was, he talked about some litigation they had, and it was his first time ever really going through any litigation. He talked about just document production and having to spend the time and go through and pull out documents and old emails. And, you know, he, was, he had no idea you hear about it, but until you actually have to go through it. Um, and, and it's even more challenging at, at a university to at tech transfer office to, to go through that. So, um, it's definitely one of those things. If you can work it out, like you said, um, it's, I think, better for all parties involved. Exactly. Now, keeping on patents a little bit more, is your office similar to a, a lot of other offices that you'll file a provisional and then, you know, maybe file a PCT? And do you generally wait till you have a licensee before you foreign file? Um, how, how does your process work in that regard? Yeah, here over the last couple of years, especially, we have really made some great strides in establishing a more coherent and uh, reproduced process to because historically um, we had multiple licensing specialists kind of working in their own little silos and doing their things uh, with a little bit of general overview. Now under the organization, uh, our licensing director has kind of taken the reins and the challenge of trying to coordinate this and make it very much more uh, repeatable, reproducible, so that all of our faculty understand nobody's being treated any differently from anybody else. If you're a first-time yeah. disclosure, uh, new faculty member versus a you know years, year, you know years of tenure, multiple-time uh, license license licensor. You know, you're treated the same, and it's the, and we've established this process because it has historically worked really well. And so, it it as you suggest, you know, we like to spend a lot of time, and in fact, a little bit more money than normal, on the upfront provisional filing. A couple of reasons, right? We will get uh, some outside counsel help in defining some possible strategies right off the bat with the invention disclosure, even before that initial provisional file. Let's think about how this could play out. Let's get the faculty member involved in talking through what we know and what we don't know and what we think might be possible so that when we draft our provisional, we have our claim set that we're trying to capture. We have plenty of stuff in the spec to allow for potential down the line because that's going to bring more value absolutely to the, to the patent eventually right and so we'll spend a little bit more time energy and money right off the bat but get that provisional file when it's gone through our process of analysis again like i say the invention disclosure comes in 
uh, a, pat, a licensed uh, licensed uh, specialist is assigned to it. That licensing specialist is responsible for that all the way through. So that person will now work with the faculty member, with the council, to go through this process and understand there seems to be uh, novelty and we we understand the market relevance. Here's how we could strategically place this these claims. And let's make sure and specify some other potential uh, ways that it could be used. And then we will go ahead and file that provisional. And then we will we will invest. We'll tell our faculty members this. We're going to invest through the 30-month period. Okay? So we'll convert at that one year. Hopefully, we have a licensee by then. But right, even if we right. don't, we'll, we'll go ahead and go to PCT at that stage so that uh, – uh, we give it the maximum opportunity to find that licensee who can take this thing into the marketplace. But once we get to that 30 month stage, uh, we're, we're not going to go further because, right. you know, that's ample time. The market has probably changed by now. The technology quite, quite often has been usurped. Yep. The, the researchers themselves have moved on into different areas or better ways to do it than was initially, uh, thought of. So, uh, we'll stop at that point. And I would imagine, just backing up when you were talking about getting the disclosure in and coming up with this plan and the strategy that you probably outlined with your your PIs, your researchers, um, some additional data you'd like to see them generate in, during that one-year period. So if you have just X amount of data, if you know that this invention has applicability here, there, and, you know, for a couple of different things, but you don't maybe have enough data to support maybe a broad genus claim that you're going to have them try and do as much testing they can to kind of further fill that application out, which is really the best strategy at the absolutely. end of the day. So that's a really oh, absolutely. good process for doing it. Yep, Absolutely. We want to make that provisional patent as robust as possible because it gives us the maximum opportunity for the future. And quite frankly, you know, some meat on the bone that we're trying Absolutely. to like. Right. And really, quite frankly, written description in particular is becoming an issue in more and more patents where you either have a problem at the patent office or you get invalidated in court. And then in Europe, as we've seen, you know, with a lot of patents, if if you don't have that subject matter in your priority document and you try to amend your claims later, you're, you're going to lose your priority claim if you don't have the support. So it, it's really, if you can do it, really the best strategy and really the best practice. So, so that's great that you guys do it that way. Now, you mentioned about licensees. Um, can you tell us a little bit about corporate partners that you work with at the university and um, the role that they've played in tech transfer at UT? Oh yeah, you know, um, we have many, many corporate partners at UT. You know, I I don't want to really go into specifics of who they are, but just let me just give you an idea from the strength of our research. Sure. Uh, our areas such as upstream oil and gas, right? So you can imagine who some of our corporate partners sure. would be interested in upstream oil and Especially gas. Especially since you're in Texas, too. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Production, drilling, yeah. you know, services. Okay. Uh, we have very strong research in energy storage, uh, battery materials, and battery systems. Uh, so you can imagine who some of the corporate 
parties would be supporting that. Um, we have very strong research interests or research areas in, uh, uh, gosh, let me think. Uh, medical school so does quite a bit, don't well, they, as well, the Dell Medical the School? Medical School being, yeah. this is their first graduating class. Yeah, they're very right? new. So they're very new. Yeah. And the first class graduates will graduate during the COVID thing. So there's a lot of buzz coming out around that right now <laughs> for how those kids are all lined up to go do their uh, next phase, uh, you know, and, and they're going to have to kind of do some kind of electronic graduation thing over the, over the zoom or whatever it is. But yeah. So there's, you can imagine there's lots of, yeah, we've had a very strong pharmacy school, of course, yes. even before the med school. So you can imagine who some of the corporate players are there. And one of the things we've, we're seeing uh, around corporate partnerships is uh, an enhanced uh, interest and we see a lot of them wanting to establish and actually do establish uh, these master research agreements, right? That's awesome. So they kind of they kind of define we company Acme company are willing to commit X dollars over X years uh, to the university for research projects to be named later, uh, and as part of that commitment, they kind of define out here are all the terms and conditions under which that will apply to that and that money. Uh, including there would be some IP terms in there, right? So while our industry engagement office actually manages all those documents and all the negotiations that are relevant to that, we get involved with them for the IP portion uh, so that we understand exactly what uh, the companies are after uh, and exactly what we're allow allowing them to have. Uh, and then uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, faculty will kind of be made aware that Acme Company now has this master agreement. You know, they're interested in your area, so you can apply to them with a scope of work, and that gets rolled into everything under those terms. That's pretty neat. Right. Yeah. So we have more and more of those kind of deals being established by companies, large companies, multinational companies, you know, like I say, in all these industries that we're very strong in, and now the medical school, so we get a lot of uh, the pharma entities as well are involved in that yeah a lot of the pharma so, entities are yeah. almost completely virtual now and so and, right. and and i have a feeling once this pandemic is over we're going to see infectious disease research more those master type agreements coming yep. into place in in a lot of universities that are strong and in, in um kind of the medical pharma research areas the life sciences so absolutely that's awesome can you talk, I, I don't know how specific you can get about some of your office's big, biggest success stories? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the largest commercial success in the history of UT OTC was a drug formulation. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> that was licensed to a large international pharma company. And that, uh, that generated over $70 million between 2008 and 2018. Nice. Um, but, you know... Interesting, when you think about success, I like to point to uh, a more obscure, obscure example uh, of an actual ongoing opportunity that generates uh, consistent revenue. It's a software license, and the software is uh, designed uh, and used by uh, the licensee company uh, to service automotive markets. And so automotive manufacturers around the world oh, wow. uh, use, this, use this software. 
uh, and it began in 2005, and it's been very consistent between one and a half, two and a half million dollars a year since 2005. And so, you know, eventually, wow. and guess what? The beauty of it is, it's not patented. It, you're so not going to expire. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It, it's um, right? sometimes it goes to show, you know, whether it's software, it could be a, a plant variety. I know some of the UC, yeah. um, University of California um, entities, tech transfer offices make a lot of money, believe it or not, on um plants strawberries grapes things like that it sure. it just goes to to show you you can um have a big return on a technology that's not necessarily patented it might be copyrighted or it might just be germplasm or something like that absolutely so, so that's that's pretty cool to me, to me that's kind of that's kind of like yeah take a take a look at what else is out there outside of your normal box of thinking. Yeah, just don't have the blinders uh, on and always thinking it necessarily right. has to be a patent, which is a really right. good point. Oh, another classic example, it was a very short-lived, but generated over $6 million of revenue for us. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, the geology, the Jackson School of Geology, um, they uh, did a project in the Gulf of Mexico where they did a whole bunch of uh, seismic readings and took a bunch of data and they were looking at tectonic plate movement back then and taking all these readings. So they had all this data and so a few years back, um, 2015 or 16 or so, uh, Mexico de, uh, they privatized, I guess, the Pemex. And so what that did was it allowed for the new uh, Mexican National Oil Company to uh, opened some of the lease holdings that they had in the Gulf of Mexico for the first time to potential uh, exploration production. And so the first thing companies learned was, hey, the Jackson School of Geology at UT often has a bunch of data. And it's, it's old, two-dimensional seismic, but that would give us an idea for should we go after that lease or not. And so we were able to license wow. that data and it, like I said, it generated like six million bucks over a couple, three years. That's a lot of money right? for data. And yeah, because it was valuable. Yep. Right. And and now, of course, it's not valuable at all because the leases that have been uh, captured, they do the 3D, 4D seismic, and all that stuff. So they they don't need this old data. But they, it was really valuable there at the start when these first time available leaseholdings in the Gulf were uh, made available to the marketplace. That's pretty so cool. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? That's an amazing example. How about um, challenges for your office? If you had to highlight um, your two biggest challenges, what what would you say they are? Oh, yeah. My two biggest challenges, you know, um, well, patents are expensive. They are so expensive. I'm a patent attorney, and and I hear you. I I, I hear that all the time. It's it's uh, it's hard, and especially like you said, if you end up having to enter the national face somewhere, it's ridiculously oh expensive. Gosh. And yeah. we started to talk about patent litigation, and we won't go there because that justice chiching chiching. So yeah, and the reason so the reason it's a challenge is not just because of uh, obviously on our budget, right? The stress it puts there, but. Even once it's licensed, it creates this financial burden, you know, especially when you get so many of these new startups that are trying to form and, oh my gosh, every dollar they have to be careful with. And, you know, 
you you start to see them force themselves to drop certain patent filings when maybe you know you know that they probably shouldn't because a lot of their value is tied up in having some of those filings yeah. international or whatever it may be uh, but you understand why they either have to close the company down or you know drop Drop the patents, yeah. Australia, Australia yep. or whatever, right? So it's it starts to become a real challenge in so many ways because of that expense. Absolutely, yeah. No, they okay. they are expensive, and then um, other challenges. Another, yeah, another challenge that I see really that we have in Austin. You know, it might not be one of the things you originally think of because people think about Austin as a thriving. Uh, startup focused community and it is compared to a lot of places but that ecosystem that we have here in Austin is really not the ecosystem that we would like to have and what I mean by that is you know the the amount of there's there's a good amount of uh, capital looking for opportunities to invest um, and that a lot of that investment capital is interested in technology, but the, the things that they understand in Austin are more software, gaming, and this t- type of thing where the products that we have, the patents that we have with a lot of value are life science patents, some of these physical science areas that we've talked about in the oil and gas and the energy storage and chemistry sectors and such. So. Uh, we need investors. We need an ecosystem that thinks along those lines, right? And so yeah. today, when we want to help a faculty member form a startup in the life sciences, we go to Boston, yeah. where everybody else goes, right? right. It's, because those, those those investors know what the it's the a long run. Yeah, it's means. a long runway there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Understand. And the ones that are here, uh, you know, quick turnaround uh, type. They're looking for a quick, you know, product. Quick, you know, things yeah. are going to happen quickly. Where if you're talking pharma, not going to happen quickly. Might happen quickly with a med device, depending on the device. Could. But pharma is just such a long runway that it's going to be a long exactly. time before you see your return on your investment. So exactly. So I our hope is, and I think it is coming to pass. It's just slow is that we continue to do this. We got to get our funding from wherever we can get it on the planet, basically. Uh, and as we have successes, those people who are here will start to take notice and start to get involved and start to understand how, what are they thinking? Well, you know, let me introduce you to these guys, right? Talk to them about what, how they think about stuff because you're not going to want to hear it from me. You know, listen to other people who have done this before in that area. And then you can start doing stuff in that area. So hopefully it'll grow and evolve in that way. Yeah, hopefully. And I think also with the, the new medical school down there, too, hopefully that will, will help, help, the, help that grow even faster than, than it would maybe otherwise. Yep, absolutely. Another topic that's of interest to um, very popular topic right now that people are talking about are women inventors and entrepreneurs. Does your office or does the university have, have any any programs to help and encourage or assist even women inventors and entrepreneurs? You know, there, the university has a lot of programs for uh, women uh, faculty support and 
so I think women inventors kind of, kind of get supported through that. Now we are just now starting to try and track, you know, uh, women who participate in our inventions through the disclosure process, right? So it's, it's pretty simple to pick out the PIs that are women. Um, but it's a little more difficult when you start to look at was a woman involved at all, right? Because you have a list of people typically on most disclosures and, and, you know, I think, from a perspective of the number of PIs, it's a relatively small percentage, but number of women involved, I think it's completely the opposite. Uh, I think there are it's a quite a high percentage Advantage. of co-inventors in the in the research labs of these grad students. Uh, so we're going to try to start tracking that and try to start providing some feedback to the community so that we can kind of focus more and more on that. Uh, we do uh, a lot of work with a local investment group that is uh, owned by a woman, run by women, and their whole investment strategy is to try to focus on women-owned women. businesses. That's and great. So, uh, yeah, we, we work with them quite a bit. But uh, uh, we we think it's important. Um, oh, and the other, the other thing to think about when you come talk about women in technology uh, is – that uh, I am one of the only men in our office, me, uh, the director oh, wow. of, of the legal department, Dave, uh, a couple of licensing specialists are men. So, yeah, most of our people in our office are women. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, it ought to be interesting to see what your tracking starts to show. And um I think maybe once you start releasing that information out into the public, you'll see even more women take interest. So that's fantastic. I hope so. Hope so too. Um, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to get your thoughts on the role of Autumn and other institutions. I don't know if you're familiar with NACUA at all. Do you think they provide value? And if so, um, what's your thought? Yeah, you know, Autumn, I'm not familiar with NACUA, but I can talk about Autumn and uh, LES which I do know, you know, it's always good to have a community of people who are all facing the same challenges to, for no other reason than just to commiserate, but also just a sharing of ideas and bouncing thoughts off of each other, uh, which is, you know, one of the uh, sad parts about this whole uh, COVID pandemic kicking in right around the autumn. Uh, national, national meeting, yeah. Uh, conference, because it's always a great opportunity to group up with folks. Um, but we do a similar thing here in Austin with the UT system being located here uh, and how they uh, invite all of the tech transfer folks from uh, the institutions, the 15 UT institutions from around the state, all come into Austin and have a little one-day confab, so we kind of have a mini version of. of oh wow, mini so, autumn again, type of thing. You know, yeah. You think about UT El Paso and UT uh, Rio Grande Valley. They've got whole, totally different things that they have to be concerned with than what we have here in Austin. And so it's great to hear from them and and talk to them and share uh, ideas with them. Yeah, the UC system has something similar with their 10 different universities, too. They all get together. I think it's, um, they said, twice a year and exactly that. And they also try and make sure that 
their licensing consistently using certain terms so they can't get a oh, corporate yeah. partner to say, well, Austin gave me this these terms, but El Paso gave me these terms, or they agreed to this. Why? So from a consistency and operational perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense for you guys to all meet yep. uh, at least once a year. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And it kind of gets like, that same consistency issue is also another piece of value that Autumn brings, right? Because companies all the time are trying to play us off of each other. Yes. Oh, you know, Stanford gave me this. Why won't you do? Hey, man, I know exactly what Stanford did. What Stanford did, did, yeah. That's not what they do. Exactly. (laughs) I'm sure that happens a lot. How about LES? Are you involved heavily in LES? Because it seems like a lot. The more people I talk to, it seems like everyone finds a lot of value in LES. Yeah, LES is interesting because of the fact that it, uh, being licensing executives generally, it is not focused only on universities, right? So you get a lot of corporate folks, which uh, those are exactly the people we need to know, right? Exactly. Whether they're doing in-licensing or out-licensing, uh, we want to understand what the companies are thinking and what's driving their decisions and make some contact there so that we can talk to people when we have something that looks interesting. So that's that's the huge value that LES brings is incorporating the company uh, representatives into the deal. Right. How about credentialing? Uh, do you find it important? Do you think it makes a difference? Because I'm hearing things both ends from both sides on that on credentialing. What's what's your thought? You know, uh, just speaking for myself, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't want to say. I don't want to say there's no value to. The credentialing, because certainly uh, going through the the training and taking whatever test that you would have to take to pass and be credentialed provides uh, some added level of understanding to the person that the person would bring to the job. But um, at the end of the day, this is a job uh, that I, the things that I value about it are relationship building capability. Um, and uh, the ability to think um, broadly about opportunities and how to structure deals to to the benefit of uh, both parties and society as a whole, right? So uh, it's less about being officially titled something to sure. me. But sure. that's, that's a personal, that's just my personal take on it. Like I said, I don't I have s- anything against it. Yeah, I see both people argue it both ways. So it's always interesting to get people's perspective on it. So, mm-hmm. um, so I always like to close by asking people if they could have a genie in a bottle or, you know, a Santa or somebody who grant them or tooth fairy, get, grant them three wishes for their office. What, what would those wishes be? So for you, if you had those proverbial three wishes, what, what would you wish for? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not, uh, I, I kind of tried to think about uh, what would I wish for, but really, I don't know much about that. But my vision for the OTC is this, that we would have uh, three to four times more engagement from our faculty, because I believe that we have uh, a vast majority of research faculty at UT Austin that for either historical reasons or whatever, they're not participating in our process. So we need to reach out and bring more of them into the fold. Uh, we develop a local ecosystem, which we talked about, that understands 
uh, the value of both life science investment and physical science investment around those areas that where UT excels, like we talked about the upstream oil and gas, the semiconductor design, uh, the energy storage, the membrane separation, and we continue to grow the corporate relationships that we have um, so that we can provide pr- the critical market insights to the researchers who are interested in commercialization. So all of this will result in not only better research outcomes, but market relevant and closer to product uh, inventions that result in more valuable uh, licenses for the university. Well, I think whether you call that a vision or wishes, either way, I think those are those are really good things. And, and hopefully you can continue to plug away and, and get those realized sooner rather than later. We'll get there. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Yeah. Well, Les, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Well, they can send me an email to lnichols, that's L-N-I-C-H-O-L-S, at otc.utexas.edu, or they call me at 512-471-0275. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Les. It's been real great having you on the podcast today and having a chance to learn more about you and your office. So thank you again. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.